0: hello welcome to horror comics podcast it has been uh, it's been a minute i know it's uh march like halfway through march and all of april are the busiest time of the year Uh, busier than like christmas and uh it's not because of like work or anything like that it like it's literally just almost everybody and i'm not exaggerating almost everyone i know their birthday is in April, including family, my wife, uh, in-laws, it's it's ridiculous, my best friends, and on top of that, um, everybody seems to be wanting to get married in April as well, and every band that I've ever been in decided they wanted to get back together and have a goddamn reunion show, or weekend, or whatever, so it's just been band practices and birthdays and planning and, and a lot of rehearsing on top of regular responsibilities outside of those things. Um, yeah, I sounds like I'm complaining. Really happy to have those kinds of friends and stuff. But anyway, it just sometimes it keeps you from doing uh, some things like this that you want to do, um, but aren't as important, unfortunately. But it's good to be back. And I'm actually going to read and talk about uh, something. I originally had something more grand uh, planned, but based off of everything I just said, I obviously haven't had time to really get everything together, but um, re- I'm still working on that project. I don't know how long it's going to take, but hopefully I can get it on here uh, very soon, and it's not some crazy groundbreaking thing. I just I want to compile a bunch of information and research before I do it, so um, that'll be fun once we get there, but until then, I'm going to cover uh, The Haunt of Fear, number 25, from EC Comics, because uh, I, I really like the way the, f- the first story in this book I thought was cool. Um, I, not that, you know, any of it, but it's just a unique start, and um, you'll see what I mean when we get there, but uh, yeah, so real quick, um, this is actually the first time I get to do this, so it's very cool. Uh, I get to promote somebody else's podcast, and that somebody is Zarek and Rob. Over at Nonsense Broadcasting Station uh, is a really cool podcast, but they sent over the promo and they're actually going to play mine too on their show. So it's very cool. Uh, making friends all over, man. I tell you, it's awesome. So go check them out. Subscribe. Also rate and review because that helps uh, podcasts a lot to have uh, reviews and ratings and all that stuff. So go check them out. Here's their promo. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Eric. My name is Rob. And we're the hosts of the Paranonsense Broadcasting Station. A show where we talk about all things paranormal, conspiracy, or nonsense alike. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Paranonsenses. That's P-A-R-A-N-O-N-S-E-N-S-E-S. And we have a Facebook page. And also we have an email, Paranonsenses, at gmail.com. .com. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify. Our hosting site is Podbean. So tell people to listen, and you will like us. All right, bye, peace. There you go. Um, I really like their show. It's right up my alley. I think you're gonna if you're here, I think you're gonna dig it too. So go check them out, like I said, and enjoy. I literally just got through listening to their most recent episode about uh, Spring Heeled Jack. and if you don't know what that is, I'll let them tell you. So also, and this isn't a promo swap. I just got really excited. But um there's this really cool podcast called Knife Point Horror um that if you like horror stories you should go listen it's primarily one guy that tells the stories but it's very cool because it's not like an introduction like okay this week we're talking about this it like starts with as if the person as if he's the one that experienced it and it's like a first hand account of this story that happens and um y- you know you would think that You know, just okay. Well, he's telling the story, so obviously he lives. What's the fun in that? I'm telling you, I get sucked into this thing. Uh, it's very good, highly recommend that. But they just released the first one, um, in a very long time, and it's a good one. So I think it's called the Copper Cup. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool. It's a cool podcast. Highly recommended. I just got really excited because they posted a new episode yesterday and I was like, oh, here we go. Um, it's easy to get lost and there's some spooky stuff in there. Really, really creepy ones too. Um, there's one that really stuck with me, but I'll let you guys uh, figure that out. So yeah, go check it out. And um, I'm not like sponsored by them or anything. I just really, really like it a lot. So um, yeah, until then, I guess we could go ahead and dig into... This issue. I don't have any crazy, uh, haven't had any crazy experiences or anything like that lately. Um, haven't experienced sleep paralysis in a long time, so that's good. No, uh, haven't had any kind of, I can't even remember what story, what stories I've told on here before, but, um, I haven't heard any like, you know, voices in the other rooms when no one else is home or anything like that. So it's been a pretty quiet, um, pretty quiet around here. But at the same time, I haven't really been home much, so, uh, who knows? We'll see what happens, but I'll report back later if anything does uh, arise. Uh, kind of hoping it was that part of you that, like, you really don't want anything to happen, but part of you does. That's uh, <laughs> curious. Uh, so, anyway, we'll see. Okay, we can head on over to uh, so a little bit of background on The Haunt of Fear, number 25. Now, this was released uh, as the May and June issue... Uh, In 1954, we've got the cover art by Graham Ingalls and an unknown colorist. We've got The New Arrival, artist Graham Ingalls, written by uh, Otto Bender. We've got Indisposed, with art by George Evans and written by Al Feldstein and Bill Gaines. Uh, Way to Die, written by Al Feldstein. I guess they don't know who did art. You have The Old Witch's Niche. No writer, no credit given to anybody there. Um, You have Out Cold. By uh, Art by Jack Kamen, written by Carl Wessler. We've got The Light in His Life, writ- art by Jack Davis, and written by Otto Bender. And before we get into the actual story, just a little background on The Haunt of Fear, just as a series. Um, it ran from May-June of 1950 through November-December of 1954. Uh, there were a total of 28 issues. Which are collected in uh, these really nice hardback covers, but um, they're, they're, they're published by Dark Horse Comics. But they they keep everything uh, collected, and I'm actually reading from one of those. Um, it is volume five, which does contain uh, issues 25 through 28. So this is kind of the wrap up here of this series. So um, obviously by the June uh, May June. Uh, cover date you can tell that this is a bi-monthly anthology series uh, again by ec comics and it goes right along with tales from the crypt and the vault of horror uh, as part of that trinity um so yeah in 1950 uh, bill Gaines and editor al feldstein uh, discovered they shared similar similar tastes in horror Uh, they first began experimenting with horror tales as features in their existing titles such as crime patrol which was briefly retitled uh, the crypt of terror and then finally Tales from the Crypt, by which point the horror genre had become predominant. In the early 1950s, comic book publishers seeking to save money on second-class postage permits frequently changed the titles of their comics rather than start new ones at number one. Uh, An EC Western comic book series called Gunfighter, which itself had originated with number five, uh, having adopted the numbering from Fat and Slat, uh, was similarly rechristened The Haunt of Fear with issue number 15. The haunt numbering was reset after number 17, 3, as explained... God, that stuff. I don't know how people keep up with that. As explained in the letter column of issue number 4, after publishing issues 15, 16, and 17, the United States Post Office requested that the fourth issue actually be numbered number 4 rather than number 18. Well, you can't fight City Hall. The EC War comic Two-Fisted Tales took over the old haunt numbering, starting with issue number 18 and itself never ended up resetting. Uh, for, this, for this reason... Even within the same original 1950s series, uh, there are actually two separate issues, each of The Haunt of Fear 15, 16, and 17. So, artist Graham Ingalls took over the art duties of The Haunt of Fear, starting with issue number four. He became the Old Witch's primary artist for the remainder of the comic's run, though his art has been appearing since the second issue. Uh, Ingalls would take over the cover duty with issue number 11 in in February of 1952. Uh, other artists who contributed to the title were Feldstein, uh, Johnny Craig, Wally Wood, Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Davis, uh, George Russos, Harry Harrison, Joe Orlando, uh, Sid Check, George Evans, Reed Crandall, Jack Kamen, uh, Bernard Krigstein. It's kind of the who's who of uh, art back then. I mean, that's that, that's a hell of a list, and you know, you it's iconic for a reason. You know it when you see it. Uh, a lot of these guys. So, uh, so Ingalls' work uh, on the. Eight-page lead stories and his splash pages, particularly on issue number uh, issues fourteen and seventeen, set a new standard for horror illustration. Uh, these have been rare; these have rarely, if ever, been equaled since. Uh, Poetic justice in the twelfth issue was adapted for the nineteen seventy-two Tales from the Crypt film uh, from Amicus Studios in England. The movie starred Peter Cushing as the kindly old junk collector. Uh, Ingalls drew "Wish You Were Here" from Haunt number twenty-two. Uh, it was also adapted for film. Horror We Horror We How's by What? Horror We housed by you, in issue number 17 is considered by many EC's best drawn horror story ever. Perhaps it is the best by anyone in any era. A lot of opinion here but I guess that is what it is. So uh, the homicidal maniacs creepy visage was taken from an old movie still of the silent film Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde which starred John Barrymore. Uh, the story artwork won an award as Best EC Horror Art at the 1972 EC Fan Addiction Convention. That in and of itself is a very iconic image. I mean, if you look up horror comics, you're going to come across that pretty quickly. Um, Gaines and Feldstein were responsible for writing all the stories until the end of 1953. An unauthorized adaptation of Ray Bradbury and another one of EC Comics eventually led to a series of authorized Bradbury adaptations. Uh, Features include Grim Fairy Tales, Horror-based parodies of well-known fairy tales such as Sleeping Beauty and uh, Hansel and Gretel. The parodies began appearing in issue number 15 in 1952. Uh, The title's most controversial story was Foul Play, number 19 in 1953. It was written by Feldstein and drawn by Davis. Uh, It featured a crooked baseball player being dismembered with his body parts used to play baseball by his murderers. The story was singled out by Robert Warshow. In his 1954 essay, Paul, the Horror Comics, and Dr. Wortham, he described it as the outer limits of good taste, quote unquote. It was also one of many examples used by Frederick Wortham in his book, Seduction of the Innocent. Author Grant Geisman used the title of the story for his book, EC Artist, Foul Play, from 2005. So, as with the other EC comics edited by Feldstein, the stories in this comic were primarily based on Gaines' reading of, a, reading of a large number of horror stories and using them to develop springboards from which he and Feldstein could launch new stories. Uh, specific story influences that have been identified include the following. The Wall from issue 15 in 1950, um, Ed Allan Poe's The Black Cat and the Telltale Heart. The Hunchback, issue four, Robert Bulch's uh, The Mannequin. A Strange Undertaking from issue six from is. Uh, Rad, I guess the springboard for those is kind of what I'm, I should have said. It says that, but just to clarify, um, the second title is what the influence, I guess, was. So, uh, the strange undertaking from issue six, Ray Bradbury's The Handler, horror in the schoolroom from issue seven, John Collier's Thus I Refute Beasley, uh, sorry, Bilsey. I am a tad dyslexic, in case you couldn't tell. Hounded to death from issue eight by Maurice Levels, uh, Levels. The Kennel, Irony of Death from Issue 8, Bram Stoker's The Squaw, Warts So Horrible is from Issue 9, is from Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Forbidden Fruit from Issue 9, Will- William Hope Hodgson's The Voice in the Night, The Gorilla's Paw, from is- also from Issue 9, um, from W.W. W. Jacobs' The Monkey's Paw, uh, Ship Shape from Issue 14, William Hope Hodgson's The Derelict, Derelict. <laughs> Sorry, my mind went to Zoolander uh, Thump Fun Issue 20 from Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart Wish You Were Here from Issue 22 But W.W. Jacobs The Monkey Paul, yet again They really like that one um, Model Nephew from Issue 22 from H.P. Lovecraft's The Terrible Old Man I think that that's, that's pretty common I mean well, well, let me wrap up this part. Okay, so after their unauthorized adaptation of one of Bradbury's stories in another magazine, Bradbury contacted E.C. about their plagiarism of his work. Uh, they reached an agreement for E.C. to do authorized versions of Bradbury's short fiction. These official adaptations include The Coffin from issue 16 and The Black Ferris from issue 18. But yeah, as far as springboarding from other stories, um, I definitely see it picked out when in reference to um, E.C. Comics and uh, William Gaines uh but it's i mean that's pretty common practice i mean to me that's just basically that's just basic influence now i guess if you're really taking a specific story like say a song so our band like we were like in love with like tom petty and like queen and um just like rock stuff like that um And I I know that there's some bands like Weezer has talked about it too, where it's like, okay, I'm going to play this other song. That is the song. Now, how do I deconstruct it? How do I move it and change things? So that's really springboarding. But like, I guess the difference is we didn't do that with like a Tom Petty song. Like, okay, here's what they did here. Let's change it. It's more of an influence. So I guess that is the difference there. Um, And not necessarily just being influenced. Um, But I, you know, I have a feeling a lot of writers do that, um, and that's okay. I mean, make it your own, I guess, and then <laughs> just don't completely rip them off. But, uh, but some of it, I guess, too, they said was parody. So, you know, that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different ball game. So, um, so we've got the old witch. So, although EC's horror stable consisted of three separate magazines, there was little beyond their titles to distinguish them. Each magazine had its titular host but the hosting duties for any one issue were typically shared with the hosts of the other two. Thus, a single issue of The Haunt of Fear would contain two stories told by the Old Witch, one by the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt, and one by the Vault Keeper from the Vault of, Vault of Horror. The Halt of Voror, Uh the professional rival- <laughs> <coughs> rivalry between those three, ghoul lunatics, was often played for comic effect. The Old Witch was the last to make her appearance. The first issue of The Haunt of Fear had no host. Uh, the second issue debuted The Witch's Cauldron, feature... Uh, with the old witch introducing herself in a story drawn by artist Jack Kamen. The third issue featured a Craig cover depicting three stepping out of doorways and launched a letter column, the, wi- the old witch's niche. That's why there's no... Why there's no writing credit on there? Because it's a letter column. Uh, I was literally just reading from the table of contents. So, therefore, the old witch pres- uh, presided over the magazine as its comedic horror host, delivering an irreverent and pun-filled commentary to lighten the horrific tone of the stories she introduced. In spite of her slow start, the Old Witch would prove uh, to be the most visible of the Galunatics in their initial run. Not only did she appear in virtually every issue of The Haunt of Fear, Tales from the Crypt, and Vault of Horror, she also appeared in the final story of Crime Suspense Stories in every issue from number 3 through number 16. That's one I I need to get that. I think I've got a few... um, but they're not collected. They're single issues. So, um, the character of the Old Witch was inspired by Old Nancy, the Witch of Salem, host of Alonzo Dean Cole's radio series, The Witch's Tales, which aired from 1931 to 1938 on WOR and Mutual, and in syndication, the Old Witch's own account of her origin story may be found in the Haunt of Fear, number 14's A Little Stranger, which details the circumstances surrounding her birth. It's awfully deep. <laughs> God, so... So here's The Demise. In 1954, Gaines and Feldstein intended to add a fourth book to their horror publications by reactivating their earlier title, The Crypt of Terror. They were stopped dead in their tracks, however. um, And this is where I've already been over the comics code and all that stuff. But that's why, you know, all of these books kind of went down. So a little bit more about the reprints is The Haunted... um, kind Of where to find it, and I guess the history of it, but the Honor Fear has been reprinted on numerous occasions. Ballantine Books reprinted select haunt stories in a series of paperback EC anthologies in 1964 to 1966. The magazine was fully collected in a series of five black and white hardbacks by publisher Russ Cochran as part of the complete EC library in 1985. In 1990 and 91, Cochran, in association with Gladstone Publishing and Solo, uh, reprinted a handful of color stories between Between November 1992 and August 1998, Cochran and Gemstone Publishing reprinted the full 28 individual issues. The complete run was later rebound, with covers included in a series of six softcover EC annuals. Uh, Cochran Publishing and Gemstone Publishing planned to publish hardcover recolored volumes of The Haunt of Fear as part of the EC Archive series until Gemstone's financial troubles left this project in limbo. The series has since been revived by GC Press LLC... Uh, a boutique imprint established by Russ Cochran and Grant Geisman, and The Haunt of Fear, Volume One, was released in January of 2012. Now, obviously, um, this isn't exactly up to date because um, this one that I'm reading from was from is actually uh, pressed. This first edition by Dark Horse is from October of 2018, so it's it's pretty much brand new. Because um, yeah, I got this around uh, around. Uh, yeah, Black Friday, actually. Or, or Cyber Monday, rather, is when I got it. Um, one of the two. Because I got it, like, s- s- basically stole it from these people that were selling these. I got, like, six of them. I've talked about that before, too. Because it was just like, oh, my God, it's a fucking treasure trove of these horror uh, collections. Vault-, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, all of it. Uh, creepy. Everything. And so I really got a lot of material there for uh, this show. Um, I just didn't want it to be, like... You know, I didn't want to just do EC, even though that's kind of that and creepy, where the inspiration for this, obviously, I just, I wanted it to be, I didn't want every episode to end up being Haunt of Fear or whatever, so, um, but I guess if you guys don't care or don't mind, I will absolutely go through it, um, it's just, as far as the history side goes, um, I don't want to, I don't want to retell it, I know I've repeated some stuff, um, but I don't want to repeat EC's history on every single episode, so, Switching it up might be nice in that sense, or I can just do spotlight episodes on the history of certain publishers and creators or whatever. I'll think about it. Um, Hell, it took me uh, how long to do this episode Uh, (laughs) to actually be able to sit in here and record it. Uh, So anyway, we'll see. I'll, I'll think about it and get it together. So anyway, let's dive into these stories. All right, so our first story, as I said earlier, is The Witch's Cauldron. And the first time I read this, I, it was just cool to me. Uh, the perspective of all of it, I'm kind of winging it. I haven't decided. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do the radio play kind of voices, but um, I do kind of want to read through it. It's cool. Like, you know, you get your typical start, and I'll go. You have your title, The Witch's Cauldron. So you have the the old witch sort of uh, paddling her way through a flooded cemetery and she's as a boat she's in a cauldron with a black umbrella and her paddle is actually just a gargantuan uh, bone it looks like some it's just a really long bone and so she laughs she gives her intro uh fond felicitations freaks Come into the haunt of fear, the revolting restaurant of reeking recitations. Squat down at the terror table there and get ready for some gory gorgings of gruesome gaggings. Yet it's your shiver. Yep. So not yet. Yep. It's your shiver chef, the old witch, stirring up her cruddy cauldron, ready to meet out her. <laughs> ready to meet out her mor- morbid menu. Today's tidbits include moldy milk, whipped scream, putrid pablum. Problem, I don't know. Foul farina and chopped cod livers. All baby foods. Perfect childish chewings. Slopped past your greedy gums to whet your appetite for the main course. A disgusting dish called the new arrival. So we see an old, um, sort of Victorian home. Very dark, uh, rainy night. Take a good long look at me. Not very pretty, eh? Yeah? Take a look at me. Not very pretty, eh? I'm just an old, dilapidated, weather-beaten, paint-starved, once-proud mansion now. I've known better days. The days when I was bright and new and proud with crystal windows, dressed up in fresh, clean coats of paint, standing stately upon a lush, green lawn. Uh, But those days are gone. Gone and almost forgotten. Now people shun me, hurry past me in dread as if I were a haunted house. Well, that's what I am. A haunted house. Not the haunted house of horror tradition. With blood-stained staircases and reenactment, reenactments of evil deeds echoing down my musty old corridors, and ghosts of long-dead occupants flittering and swirling through my empty, plaster-cracked rooms, wailing and clanking chains. No, I'm a different kind of haunted house. I'm haunted by a horrible living secret. There's another kind of wailing within me. Listen, and you see this panel inside. You kind of get a little bit of a tour of the house here. You've got uh, this why over and over again, coming from upstairs. Yes, the cries of a child vibrate within my rotting shell. The squalling of a baby. What's wrong with that, you ask? Isn't that a perfectly normal thing for a baby to do? Cry? Perhaps. But this baby is dying. It's dying of, what's that? That sound in the night coming closer? It's the churning of an automobile's straining engine, coming along the old road that runs by me. Who would be fool enough to be out in this dismal night of pouring rain and lurid lightning flashes that lift the curtain of dark momentar lift the curtain of dark momentarily from time to time? There it comes, down the unpaved dirt road. Now just a rutted quagmire of mud. A car, scarcely dragging itself through the clinging sludge. But, no. No, it mustn't stop, it mustn't. Keep going past me. Don't stop here. It would be dangerous for you to stop here. Tonight... I feel my ancient timbers groaning as the wheels spine uselessly sinking deeper and deeper into the mud. I feel a shiver run through my eaves as the driver steps from the stuck car, cursing. He stares hopelessly at his mired automobile and then turns, squinting into the darkness. Don't! Don't look toward me! Please, don't! Now our traveler realizes he's got to find some shelter. Um, he's out in the pouring rain in the middle of nowhere. I'll keep utterly silent and try to hide myself behind the cloak of night. Perhaps he'll walk on down the road. Perhaps he won't see me. Perhaps, oh dear, that lightning flash silhouettes me against the fluid sky. So the traveler says, what luck? There's a house close by. What luck, he says, the poor fool, bad luck. Now he's sloshing toward me. I've got to discourage him. Got to drive him away. For his own sake, I'll bang my shutters close, hiding the dim light from the nursery, concealing the fact that someone lives here. Perhaps he'll be frightened then at my brooding, empty, unfriendly appearance and go away. So we have our traveler. He's walking up to the house and he's looking at it. He thinks it's pretty uh, eerie and he wouldn't really ever want to have to stay the night here. He's hesitating, shivering at my grim, foreboding air. I'm winning. I'm... Oh, the idiot. He's thinking logically, placing practicality above fear and dread. So our traveler, he keeps... He's doing the thing It's like, oh, you know, any place, you know, to not be out in the storm... Like, I could catch my death of cold. Here we go. So in he goes. Or I guess, I'm a little bit confused because it's like, he's like in the house, in this panel, it looks like, and then in the next panel, he's kind of far away from it, Uh, but he sees the light on upstairs. So here we go. Here he comes again. What can I do to stop him? If I could only scream a warning, if I could only shout, stop, don't come here, not tonight, go away, don't enter my door or you're lost. But alas, I cannot scream. Wait, I can bang my shutters. So the shutters start to bang. This is what draws his attention to the light in the window upstairs. It doesn't frighten him. What else can I do? N- nothing but let the wind whistle and sigh mournfully through my chinks and crevices. So we have our traveler who identifies himself now in thought. Uh, his name is Lockwood. He says, uh, Ah, come on, Lockwood. That's just the wind howling past the eaves. But still he comes. He comes. What else? The bats, of course. People are frightened of bats. Uh, easy to rattle my rafters and chase a flock from my attic. So this obviously startles the Lockwood, but he's like, oh it's just bats. They're not gonna bother me. He's young and stubborn. Nothing scares him off. He's insistent upon walking into the horror that lurks within my mouldering walls. He's almost to the porch now. At the risk of hurting him, I'll shake part of my rotting eaves down on him. So some of this <laughs> wood planks come falling on him, but it makes him trip. He jumps aside nimbly. Actually, I guess he, do- he dodged it. Uh, he jumps aside nimbly. He keeps coming. One last chance. The loose board of my porch steps there. So now he trips. Oh How stubborn can he be? He just picks himself up and calls himself clumsy. It's enough to make me blow my roof. He's defied all my attempts to send him fleeing. Now he's at my front door, knocking, not knowing he's begging entry into a hideous trap. My door creaks open on hinges that have not tasted oil for long, long years. He's shocked at the face that appears in the doorway. One of those young, old faces, wrinkled as if with great age, yet stamped with a kind of youthfulness. Longwood, uh, 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 this woman answers the door, and Longwood says, you know, hey, my car got stuck in the mud, and she's like, oh, you know, come on in, get out of the rain. See how eagerly she welcomes him? He's taking it as a sign of hospitality. Oh, what an idiot! Well, he'll find out soon enough. So she identifies herself as Cynthia Aykroyd, uh, and being a widow, randomly. Uh, my name is Cynthia Aykroyd. I'm a widow. Hey Here, take off your wet things and warm yourself by the fire. Lockwood's my name. Edgar Lockwood. I'm a salesman. Thanks. Suddenly the mewling starts. Mewling sounds start. The crying coming up from the old winding stairs coming from the nursery. So she excuses herself. She's like, my baby is crying. So Lockwood's like, your baby? This is really confusing to him, so... Watch her climb the stairs, Lockwood. Her baby, use your head. Think about that for a minute. That's it. That's it. So Lockwood's thinking, her baby, you know, she's a mother. She probably adopted. No, she couldn't adopt. Um, she's a widow. I guess she's younger than she looks. Perhaps the death, death of her husband with the baby on the way aged her like that. That's logical, but whatever. Um, what a pitiful fool. Why are all human beings so logical when they want to be? Why didn't he take my warnings? He doesn't even suspect as Mrs. Aykroyd, Aykroyd returns. So the baby is still crying, and Lockwood's questioning. Like, you know, it sounds like he's in pain. And she's like, oh, he is. You know, he's he's, he's really ill. But it's all good. So Lockwood's like, well, that's, no. Can, can't you just phone for a doctor? Well, she's like, there is no phone. Don't worry about it, you know. I've taken care of him through many crisis, crises. But the anguish howls of the baby disturb you, don't they, Lockwood? You feel sorry for the little tyke. Make one more gallant offer. So he offers to, hey, go get a doctor. He's like, my car's stuck, but I can run, you know, I can walk or whatever. He's like, if your baby's life in danger, yes, Lockwood, go. Rush for a doctor. Leave. Any excuse, just don't come back. Look ahead. Don't listen to her. So she says, you know, that's sweet, but it's re- nothing really. He's not that sick. And he's like, he's just hungry. You know, it's time for his bottle. Uh, this will quiet him down. And so he offers actually to help. He's like, can I, see your, can I check, you know, see the baby and just kind of, you know, assess the situation. So she gets really defensive here. And she's like, no, you can't see him, but that's, uh, you might catch his cold. Uh, you know, no risk, no point in risking your health too. You know, uh, I'll be right back kind of thing. So he agrees. Don't you think it's odd, Mr. Lockwood? Don't you see now? Don't you sense why every moment you spend here is marching you closer and closer to a nightmarish fate? Don't you see? Of course not. You fool. Instead, you listen to the age-old, heartwarming sounds drifting down to you from the nursery door—the sounds of the loving mother and her child—and you smile. So, the mother's just kind of talking to the baby, and babies speak; they they spell it out here too. Can't you hear my beams groaning in dismay, Mister Lockwood? Look around you. Look around for a clue to her sinister secret. So he walks up to piano. He's like, "Oh well," and uh, again, it's weird. <laughs> it's so, uh, you wouldn't be able to do this today because of the. I mean, for better or worse, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying, because his his dialogue is, oh, well, mothers are queer about their kids. Overly protective shielding. Uh, she probably figured I'm the one with the germs. She, what's this? Oh, he sees something. But I was more of like using that the word queer for its like original uh, meaning. Uh, you always forget about things like that. Not just that, but lots of words that had different meanings back then just meaning strange or whatever word it is, you know, from different places and stuff like that. So you got to think, I wonder what people, you know, think now. I'm sure there's some kind of sub group on Twitter that's very angry about this comic book because of that. They think it's like, uh, I don't know, whatever. Uh, everything exists. People are terrible and will disappoint you in everywhere you go. Uh, not to be too pessimistic. I'm joking. Uh, back to the story. Uh, that's it. The framed picture on the dust-covered piano. Pick it up. Pick it up and read the inscription. Study it. To my darling Cynthia, 1917. See the uniform on the man. See the uniform on the man, Mr. Lockwood? Recognize it? And this is a World War, World War I uh, uniform. But Lockwood assumes, oh, it's just, this is from her father. And no, you idiot. Not her father. Guess again. This is a clue that can save you. Make the right guess, and you'll run and run as if demons were at your heels. Hurry, she's coming. So here she comes. She's like, oh, you found his picture. He he was killed going over the top in 1918. He's like, I'm sorry. You know, you must have just been a girl when your father died. She won't deny it's her father, Mr. Lockwood. She wouldn't tell you the truth. Not she. That would spoil it all for her. Don't you see the secret smile on her face? Stop yawning. Wake up. So he's like, look, I'm very tired. Say so, go on, I'll show you your room. So he goes to bed, and then this, the wailing starts again, the crying, and he's like he's kind of pacing around. So yep. It's not an elegant room, Mr. Lockwood. None of mine are now. You undress, blow out the candle, and sink with exhaustion into exhaustion into the musty old soft bed, and you sleep. You sleep until you're awakened by So he gets up. That's it, Lockwood. Get up. Pace the floor. That's it. Think. So he's like, well, I can't sleep with that going on. You know, it's, it doesn't sound just like pain, but there's, there's something else to it, but I just can't put my finger on it. Does it come to you now, Lockwood? Listen carefully. Why does that baby's pitiful mewling strike you as different? Why? Why? I know, it's too loud. How could a small baby cry so loud? That's it, Lockwood. You're on the right track. Hurry, discover the truth and leave my moldering, terror-filled insides. Run, run from me before it's too late. Well, he tries to get out and the door is locked yes yes your door is locked she locked you in why to prevent exactly this so he's like now i know something is wrong and she's you know trying to keep me from seeing that baby that's it lockwood put your shoulder to the door heave i'll help you i'll warp and buckle the rotted jam loosen my hold on the hinges there no one heard not above that loud loud caterwalling of her sick baby go on lockwood down the dim hallway to the nursery door look out well, it's more of a to the nursery door. Look out! Because he, he trips over something. and Pick it up, Lockwood. Look at it. Strange, isn't it? A rag doll sewn together from scraps, but why would she make one so big? Listen. Listen, Lockwood. Stand outside the nursery door and listen. Hear it? Hear it? It's sure loud, all right, but then, of course, all sounds seem louder at night. Uh, contrasting against the stillness, especially a baby's cries. No, Lockwood. Don't think of silly explanations. Don't give up and go back now. Listen. Listen to the other sounds, the sounds besides the baby squealing. So he hears what sounds like clanking of chains. He's like, what's going on in there? Push open the door, Lockwood. Push open the nursery door and see. So he's like, oh my God. When he looks in and sees, yes, Mr. Lockwood, that's her quote unquote baby. That's dumpling. Look at him. Look at him and be sick. Lockwood is gagging. He says, a grown man. Yes, Lockwood, that photo wasn't of her father. That was her husband. Mrs. Aykroyd is almost 70. Her baby, quote-unquote, is almost 40. The death of her husband during the war, leaving her a widow with an infant son, had unhinged her mind. So he sees that he's looking down at this body that is very, very malnutrition, but in a giant, you know, like a giant, uh, whatever you call it, like a sleeping, like a nightgown. So then you hear, hear, he's dying. My baby is dying, and he's Getting ready to turn around. She comes at you savagely. She's just like she was almost 40 years ago, wanting desperately to keep her infant forever young. The image of his father with her always. She never taught him to walk or talk. She kept him a a baby in mind as he grew to manhood and body. And now, this night, he's dying. And you, you fool, you had to blunder in. You had to let her surprise you. And she jumps him. But I'll have a new baby now. So he's screaming no, and she clocks him over the head with a baseball bat. You had to let her, f- you had to let her find you staring down at her mon- Manic- manicled, whatever, baby with your <laughs> back. It's been a long day, y'all. With, her- with your back turned to her. You had to let her come up behind you with the club. You had to watch the blackness close in as she struck. And now, as the blackness fades, you can see your future, Lockwood, clearly. You can see what you're gonna have to go through for the rest of your life. I warned you. I tried. I really did. So now she's got him chained up with a uh, with a bottle, and he looks terrified. And she's like, "Oh, you sweetums! It'll sweetums! It'll dumpling. Mommy loves you. Mommy take care of you. Is sleepy? sleepy? Rockabye baby. Do do do." And it starts to fade out. So we have the old witch back. And she says, It's time for me to blow, kiddies. The vault keeper awaits with a delightful little tale from his collection. I'll be back later to feed you more foul fare from my cruddy cauldron. Oh, as for poor Mr. Lockwood, I wouldn't worry about him. He's really happy now. Seems he lost his mind. Too much hitting the bottle, I guess. The sucker. Well, I gotta deliver some diapers to dear Mrs. Ackroyd. She uses old shrouds. Bye. So... That is that first story, and uh, I, it's this idea of the haunted house that can't like taking all the haunted ho- haunted house tropes and making like giving them sort of reason, giving them purpose, giving making them intentional. Like the house is alive, but really can't do anything. Uh, I thought that was really fucking cool. Um, it's a I don't know. To me, this this seems ahead of its time, even from. I don't know. It seems ahead of its time for a lot of horror now, even though if it came out now, it would seem like it's a throwback. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure maybe there is another story exactly like this, but I haven't read it. Um, I, the whole time I'm, I was kind of going back over this to get ready for the, um, earlier kind of last minute being like, I'm not doing the thing I was going to do before. I'm just going to quickly go back through this one. Um, I was like, God, I can, I can totally see this as like a good movie. Um, and get like a really good narrator to, you know, be narrating and trying to talk to the actor, you know, the character, um, Lockwood, and it could be really cool, super low budget because you don't have to have any kind of special effects. <laughs> you just need a set and three actors. Um, obviously it wouldn't make for much of a, you know, a feature length thing, but it could be a very cool, like, Twilight Zone, or whatever, um, anyway, I, I thought this story was really cool, um, a, a great idea, something different, with a very familiar, uh, sort of scenario, situation, um, because I feel like, I feel like the story came first, and then they're like, well, hey, wait, what if, like, the house was telling, like, the narrating, and, like, it's like, oh, my God, that's the thing to make it different. Uh, so, again, I think it's brilliant. I love it. I love the art. Um, it is, it, it does not, uh, sorry, keep hitting the damn mic. Uh, I love the art. It's um, actually, that is worth mentioning again. Sorry, I said I wasn't going to, but I'm going back. It's auto bender. Yeah, um, that's right. It's fantastic. It's uh, definitely worth seeking this out uh, to own because this is one I'll come back to um, time and time again. Cause that's, it's, I don't know, it's awesome the way that they did that. I know I keep repeating myself, but I really like, it's interesting that like, this isn't a more famous kind of, that no, it, and if, if they have done something with this and I just missed it, um, then that's, I guess it is what it is, but I'm so su- surprised this isn't more like, Hey, yeah. Um, uh, the New Arrival from, you know, uh, Haunt of Fear, number 25. Yeah, that's so... Uh, um, I know it's not gory and, like, shocking, but it's it's a cool idea. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe Misery took some inspiration from some aspect of this, but it, it would be a reached, I think, to say that. I'm just trying to think of anything similar, but uh, definitely if you haven't read this, go get it, because I think the sort of eerie... The art of it pulls the eeriness really into focus, um, especially the fact that the haunted house is telling you that there's something wrong, like those details of, like, the typical shutters flapping and all this creaking and moaning of the house and movement and stuff. That's very typical. But, like I said, giving it meaning like the house is trying to be like, hey, isn't this terrifying? Get the fuck out of here. Um, I, I think it's brilliant. I absolutely do. And um, I I have to give... Sorry, I got it switched up earlier. I have to give uh, Autobinder Bender the credit for writing it, but the art is by Graham Ingalls. So I flopped those earlier. Um, anyway, absolutely great job. Uh, I'll take a hundred more like this one, please. Um, <laughs> but I guess it wouldn't be as special. Anyway, I am going to move on here because we've got uh, the Vault of Horror story here by... what? Uh, who did they say it was? The... Um, doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, so we have the vault keeper here. And I'm not going to go through all the stories the way I just did that one. I just, again, I thought the dialogue by the house was kind of the important thing for me that I loved. So this next story, I'll read the intro and then I'll just kind of say what goes on. Uh, so you have the vault keeper. It's like, well, this is the second of that terrible trio of loathsome laments. The galunatics spooking. I'm, I'm going to bring that back. Galunatics. Galunatics. This is your revolting, revolting relator of rabid romances. Jesus, your vault keeper, ready to reveal a regurgitating rubbish yarn. I call this morose mess of memoir, Indisposed. So we have Henry, and he is uh, cleaning up um, the murder scene of his wife, Rita, um, they hint that he has used the garbage disposal to disposal whatever um to get rid of her body so as he's cleaning up he's got it all you know everything's perfect now and he's like well you know i got to hurry the boys are going to be here in a minute well he's putting everything away he's got a cleaver he's got a knife and all this stuff he got a saw hacksaw whatever so he puts it all where they go um he puts his bloody clothes away. He gets dressed up in his best uh, Margaritaville outfit, and you know, it's six o'clock. Time for the boys to get there. They get there, and they're like, "Oh, is she gone? Oh, lucky devil! The cat's away, huh, Henry?" And he's that you basically you get the idea. Okay, everyone thinks she's gone to Florida for a few weeks, uh, so they're out. They're here. They're having drinks, and um, you know he he mentions to. Uh, Henry mentions to George, uh, who is the person that installed the garbage disposal, and kind of talks about how, you know, much good of a deal he gave him on it, because most people would have charged him an arm and a leg, and he's just asking, like, hey, how's it, how's it doing? He's like, uh, you know, how's all this going? Whatever. So, um, you know, it's going to be really expensive because, you know, it would normally be really expensive because, you know, you got to get in there and hook it up to the waste pipe and all that shit. So they're just drinking. They're having a great time smoking cigarettes back, you know, as they would. Telling jokes and whatnot. Well, this is where you kind of get the backstory of what's been going on. Now, Rita was a very, you know, I think that maybe, I don't know. I think back then when this came out, this was like so much of like a uh, you're not a man because your wife tells you what to do or actually just expect, expects you to do anything. And like they kind of get this idea of, well, she's a stay at home. Well, she's not a mom, I guess, but wife, uh, housemaker, homemaker, I guess they called it back then. And, you know, she's like, hey, what do you think I do? Sit around playing games all day? No, I work too. Like here, take out the trash or whatever. And, but they don't play it like um, like he's some lazy asshole he he works and whatnot too but uh she's just they you know she's she's really naggy like but again like I said I hate to even say that because this book portrays her as super controlling when she's like you know you're at work all day why don't you come home and hang out with me at night like why are you gonna try to go out with the boys now this book portrays that as being like oh my god how dare she uh but you know She ain't wrong. Uh, but they do start to push it. They start to push it into like, how dare you You can't go bowling. You can't do that. You can't spend money. She keeps up with like, he spent $5. It's like, what did you spend it on? That's, that's your allowance that I give you. That's where they kind of start pushing it into like, well, doesn't he make the money, but she did whatever. And who cares? I'm not trying to make some political statement. I'm just, it's funny how like I'm reading this now and I'm like, this really isn't, she's really not all that insane. Uh, it's, uh, Pretty, you know, typical operations, I feel like, for uh, a lot of people where there's only one person working. uh, And there's not this much animosity, generally. Um, I know from experience. uh, Everybody's different, though. Whatever. So, you just get that. She's very, in the eyes of this story, she's like, oh, stop listening to this horror tale on the radio. Stop doing this. Take out the trash. Stop doing all that. Whatever. So... He's listening to the radio. This is kind of what gave him the idea, or a little bit of the, you know, kind of push was on the radio. They're talking about, ah, without a body, it's awfully difficult to break a case. Uh, You know, but Jenkins made one mistake. Lime takes a long time. We found what was left of her. So anyway, the wife keeps complaining that all the neighbors and all their friends are starting to get garbage disposals. Like, why the hell can't you get me one? Why don't you make more money? Work harder, blah, blah, blah. So he goes to um george he's like hey you know i want to surprise the wife could you um you know do this could you install this for me please um, i think that would make her really happy so this guy's like yeah i should probably start learning they're getting more popular i'll, I'll install it for you tells him obviously goes to the thing of like oh, i'll do it cheap too so it'll be a learning experience for me so uh, he announced to his wife, "He's like, hey, I, you know, I think you ought to go to Florida for a few weeks, Rita. You haven't been looking well. Jesus, I've got a bonus coming." And she's like, "What's on your mind, Henry? You trying to get rid of me?" He's like, "Get rid of you? No, like I love you endlessly." And then she's like, "I have been looking badly lately. Yes, Henry, I think I will go to Florida." So she does exactly what he wanted, and she starts going and telling everybody, "Like, oh, I'm headed off to Florida. You know, Henry's getting a bonus and all this stuff. I hope he behaves while I'm gone." So. She's out, I guess. One morning or early one morning, she George comes in. He's, she walks in while he's uh, installing the garbage disposal, and she's you know, very excited. She's like, "Oh, you're a darling! I can, thank you. Like, what a great surprise!" He's like, "Yeah, it's for you know when you come back from Florida and all this stuff." Which it was that common back then to be like, "Hey, babe, um, why don't you go to Florida for a few weeks, and uh, you know, by yourself?" And just go hang out alone. Uh, yeah, that's, I don't know. That wouldn't fly. So Henry tells George she's getting a six o'clock train. Like everybody, you know, come over tonight, you know, about nine. And so they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to have a regular stack party. Yippa-doo. So 545, Henry, you know, and Rita, he's, ta- he's taking her to drop her off uh, at the train station. Um, except on the way, he stops and beat her head to a bloody pulp. And you see this happening without the blood and gore. You just see his hand uh, smashing, I guess, something into her... What is her head off off panel? In this car that has no seats, apparently. Or, no, actually, it's just from the angle I was looking at. it. Never mind. You do see the head and you do see the blood, but they it's not colored red. It's like blue and black uh, for darkness, whatever. Um, wow, yeah, okay. I, just, I didn't really realize that just reading through it before, but now that I'm looking at it again... I'm like, yeah, no, you see the action. Um, so uh, he goes back into the garage, shuts the door, he drags the body out and dismembers it, and he's you know saws and hacks it up and chops it up into tiny pieces, and then shoves him in the garbage disposal. So he's like, you know, who's gonna think, of, look for her for what's left of her in the sewers, basically or the sewage rather, uh, when she doesn't come back from Florida, and just what will they find? So. He comes back to, and he's at the party, and they finish the uh, joke. And George is like, hey, can I get a glass of water? You know, you, do you have some on ice? He's like, ah, I don't need it, Ned. You know, we've got our own well water. I'm like you don't, you don't have town water? And George, who's the plumber, is like, you mean you haven't got town water? And he's like, excuse me, and kind of walks out of the room for a second. So they all go in the kitchen, and they're like, oh, i got to taste this well water. You know, and I was a kid, and so George goes down to the cellar, uh so henry's like well you know this well is directly into the house a pump brings the water up through the pipe in the cellar floor uh into a pressurized into a pressure tank it's the clearest freshest best tasting well water you ever drank here and george is like hey henry you know come over here for a sec he's like look i feel terrible i i didn't know about the well you know i thought the well water intake was the waste pipe you know i attached the garbage disposal unit to it you haven't used it yet have you and he's like what he's like yes yes george i used it so, you know, they turn around and they're all freaking out, choking, gagging, because there is a slimy, gooey, blood, guts mixture coming out of the faucet. So then we have the vault keeper laughing. So, Henry the Drip poured out a confession. Henry the Drip poured out a confession to the boys unexpectedly. Hey kiddies? Well, I might call this a hack yarn. I might even say I had to faucet, but I won't. Puns like that can be a drain on your patience. But I'll just say it was a yelp yarn with everything in it, plus the kitchen sink. Well, I'll turn you back to the old witch now for more of her garbage. And then C.K. will rind up the rag. Bye. I'll probably end it with just bye. But anyway, yes, yeah, that one was uh, I honestly, you know, I've talked about it before. One of the like the goryer ones, you know. Um, you actually see a lot of the violence on there, and like this gross. blood sludge coming out of the sink um you know although i don't know that they would know what it was the moment it's coming out like if you go in an old house that has been vacant for a long time and like turn on the water like it's usually i mean depending on where it's located it's usually kind of like brown or even reddish depending like down here a lot of the um kind of dirt and stuff like you, you have uh I'm trying to say plumbing that over time gets exposed to dirt or whatever, and they've got to go in and chase the pipe. So stuff like that happens. Um, yeah, rust and all that shit. Uh, but it's, I love that. Just the moment it comes out, they're all basically puking on themselves. Uh, but no, I really enjoyed this story because again, it's, it tells you sort of what happened before they even show you what happened. And then, cause that's when they do that. I'm like, what's gonna be like generally the person that did the bad thing gets their comeuppance i get that but i i like it when they kind of play with okay i know he's gonna get his comeuppance but what's it even gonna be like it's just him and his pals is there gonna be a ghost comeback? is she gonna somehow like be stitched back up as like some sort of frankenstein zombie thing and kill them i don't know uh because you never know with these sometimes um but yeah, so that, I thought that was awesome, and a whole lot of fun, again, the art's absolutely fantastic, um, again, as you expect, and, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that this one might be another one that I could come back to, this, this whole issue actually is more, it's, to me, I guess, stronger on the front side, uh, like, with these two, and then, you know, as you go on, it is fine, it's not that it's bad, it's just, um, well, we'll we'll talk about it more as we go on. But anyway, um, it's a really good issue. And it's a shame it's towards the end of the series, very short series. But uh, yeah, so I'll go ahead and move on. I won't keep repeat myself like I did with the last one. But uh, the next one is Out Cold. Sh- it's probably going to actually sound different because I had to uh, change cables and some settings got changed around a little bit, but hopefully not too different. So this story... I'm going to actually just kind of read. Um, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's mostly um, narration. So that's, I'm going to stick with that kind of like the first one. This is what might have been if Ralph hadn't gone out cold. At five o'clock on the dot, a soft chime echoed through the offices of Pierce Products Incorporated, announcing to the relieved staff that it was quitting time. The scratching of pin, pinpoints on ledgers, the chatter of typewriters, the click-click whirring of adding machines all faded away. Ralph Cohen hurriedly heard, thrust the L through N accounts back into their respective folders, pushed his swivel chair away—sorry, pushed his swivel chair away from his desk—and started toward the file cabinets. As he crossed the office, he kept looking back at the new girl they'd just hired, the redhead. He'd been looking at her all day. Ralph just hadn't been able to take his eyes off beautiful Wilma Doone. We've got him passing by. He's thinking to himself, "Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm sure she's giving me the eye." High heels clicked and heavy soles thumped across the kentile floor uh, to the doorway, eager to reach the elevators that would take them to the street level and freedom 20 stories below. He's thinking to himself, she's beautiful, a doll, a perfect doll. Soon everyone in the office had left, everyone that is, except Wilma and Ralph. His heart pounded with excitement. What, since that morning, had been merely a vague dream, then a faint hope, was now thrilling, Now a thrilling certainty. So he thinks that she's stalling on purpose, just waiting for him. Um, He's just wondering if, like, you know, does she want me as bad as I want her? You know, maybe I can drive her home and ask her for a date. Then we have the old witch interrupt. Uh, And she says, See, kiddies, even an old bag like me can get romantic. But don't get upset. There is gore to follow. For example, I could tell you how these two might have gotten together. What a blood-curdling story that would have made. So now we switch directions. Ralph, Ralph would have offered Wilma a lift home in his car, and she'd have accep- she would have accepted happily. In a few minutes, they'd have been calling each other by their first names. He confesses his, uh, you know, he hasn't been able to stop looking at her all day, and she says, you know, better keep on the road if you want to get me home in one piece. As they reached Wilma's tree-shaped street in the suburbs, Ralph would have noticed several black cats playing in his car path. And Wilma would have cried out to him in an angry voice. Wilma encourages him to don't stop, you know, run over them, kill them. And he's like, I'm, how, how could I do that? And she says, you know, she apologizes. And she's like, she just really hates cats. She's like, don't ask me why. I can't explain. She's so like, I don't care, honey, as long as you don't despise me. He'd have been impressed with Wilma's lovely home. And holding her hand, Ralph would have escorted her to the door. So he asks her out, um, the next night for a show and a dinner anything whatever you want to do and she says she would love to go out with him but she can't do it this week um you know if she wants to get her sleep for a new job just, she doesn't want to go out and you know whatever get fired for being late or tired or whatever she'd have, she'd have smiled at him warmly and agreed to go out with him the following saturday afternoon they'd have taken a walk through the park gone through the zoo, gone through the zoo. by then he'd have been feasting his eyes on her beautiful face her glorious figure the way the sunlight gleamed on her soft red hair So they get to the monkeys, or the chimps, and they're, you know, having a good time, but they get to a panther. And Ralph would have adored the way Wilma's face flushed angry, face flushed with angry loathing, and her green eyes flashed their hate when they'd come to the panther's cage. For by then he would have been madly, blindly in love with her. Yet she's freaking out about the uh, panther, and she's not uh, scared of the cats. She hates them. Like, she gets very angry when they come around. So that's a distinction that they do make, but worth keeping in mind if you're not, uh, you know, looking at the pictures. So Ralph would have taken Wilma home. Um, She doesn't invite him in, to which, you know, kind of bums him out. And she claims she's got a really bad headache, a splitting headache. So he apologizes and, you know, tells her he was planning to take her out tonight. Uh, But, you know, he'll forgive her if she can, if she'll go tomorrow. So she, of course, she agrees. Um, Ralph would have driven home, his car floating like a pink cloud, carrying him into the land, into a land of happy, hungry dreams. And seeing Wilma's beautiful face on his, seeing beautiful, (laughs) Wilma's beautiful face in his mind, he would have been only momentarily troubled by the fleeting thought. Now he's starting to think it's weird how much she hates cats. So, but again, he thinks it's a phobia. But in another instant, that memory would have vanished. So he's now planning on asking her to marry him the next night. And by my uh, understanding of events, this would be their second date. So they're really moving fast there, Ralph. So the next day would have been a, a wonderful one for Ralph warm and sunny, except for the small disturbing incident that would have happened when he called for Wilma. So, she answers the door and she's like, I "Don't worry about coming out, uh, or don't worry about coming in. I'll get my jacket. We're gonna get out of here." So now he's thinking, "Well, that's weird. Why didn't she want to come in?" Because she's like barely peeking out the door. So then, <laughs> oh Jesus, uh, Wilma would have forgotten and left the door slightly ajar, and the big black cat would have padded out, purring and rubbing against Ralph's legs. So now he thinks it's weird because she's like, "He's like, well, she can't stand cats. Why does she have one coming out of her house?" And a few seconds later, Ralph's beautiful red head would have rushed out after the cat, her eyes blazing in fury. The cat would have arched its back, spitting and barring its, burying its fangs, sorry, at the sight of her. And now she kicks the shit out of this cat. I mean, kicks it clear across the freaking yard. Calls it a treacherous black hellion. Now, Ralph is like, Jesus, Wilma. So they're getting cuddly. Now I'm moving on. But the incident would have been quickly forgotten by Ralph, whose heart... In mind would have been too full of love for Wilma to harbor any bad thoughts of her. And they'd have driven out to some calm, quiet, rustic spot, and he'd have proposed. And basically she says, you know, I, I want to, I want you, and I want to be with you, but um, we just, I, I can't, um, you know, I can't marry you. She, he, he's obviously like, well, why? If we love each other, why shouldn't we? And he says something along the lines of, you know, wouldn't your family approve of me? Not along the lines of. That's actually verbatim what he says. I'm just trying not to read their dialogue verbatim. But so he, yeah, he says, you know, he wants to meet his uh, her parents, and how wonderful wonderful they must be to have had her. So she's like, my father's dead, and my mother, I hate her. I I hate her with all every ounce of my being. I hate her. Ralph Co- <clears throat> Ralph Cohen would have been shocked at the cold, bitter malice in Wilma's voice. So now he's like, how can you hate your mother, like your own mother? And she tells him that's actually not her real mother, it's his stepmother. Please, don't make me talk about her anymore. This has ruined my day. Ralph would have worried about what Wilma had said, and the next morning, he'd have come to a decision. He'd have called his boss and told a white lie. He calls in sick. He'd have, been, he'd have left his apartment planning exactly what he was going to say to Wilma, Dune's stepmother. He'd have grown more and more uneasy with each block. He'd passed bringing him nearer to the Dune home, and by the time he'd arrived, he'd have been shaking with nervousness. Basically, he's kind of starting to think, you know, if she really is that bad, you know, I don't know, but maybe she'll, maybe I can convince her basically that they should be together. Ralph would have forced himself to walk to the door and he'd have pressed the doorbell with a trembling hand. It would have sounded like the nail, the nail of doom to him. So apparently she's taking a long time according to Ralph's thoughts. And then she finally calls, you know, says, who is it? Mrs. Dune would have let Ralph into the house and he'd have been astonished to see what a sweet looking little old lady she was with a kindly light in her soft blue eyes and a wrinkled face wreathed in a pleasant smile. So just like they said, you know, she welcomes men. She's super sweet. Um, Ralph would have liked the old lady right off. Her motherly manner would have filled him with the confidence he needed to lay his heart bare before her. And as he spoke, her cats would have come out and purred around him. So she noticed that She says that, you know, the cats like you, you got to be a good guy. And I know that because they're, you know, they're all, they love you. So she does call him Mr. Cowell. And he says, Cowan, Mrs. Doom, but please call me Ralph. Now about Wilma and me, he'd have told her of his love for Wilma and he'd have begged for it and gotten her approval. And before long, he realizes, you know, Wilma's going to be home from work any minute. And she's like, Ah, don't worry about it. You know, stay for dinner. I'll, you know, let me get you some wine. When Wilma would have come home, she'd have shouted angrily at her stepmother the the moment she'd seen Ralph growing drowsy from his second glass of wine. Well, now they've got him talking like he's hammered, but he greets her, they're screaming at each other. So Wilma does say, you know, you did it again. You You tricked me again. She's like, I did no such thing. He came of his own accord. Ralph's body would have gradually begun to ache as every sinew and muscle tightened, then grew numb. Wilma's screaming at her mother about putting some of that stuff in his wine. It's also worth noting, sorry, earlier when I was like, you see, mister, she calls him Mr. Cowell, and he corrects her. That's the second time that has happened. So whenever she says, you put that stuff in his wine, she says, that stuff, as you call it, is my best potion. The mother says that. And he would have realized that he could no longer move, that he was paralyzed. He would would be able to do nothing but watch the marrow-chilling change come over Mother Dune. They're still screaming at each other. She's like, no, you witch, no, I won't let you have him, not this one. Like, don't be an idiot, Wilma. How many opportunities do we have to get fresh meat? You and my cats. Do you think my cats like the stinking, rotting, dead meat you drag home from your grave diggings, you ghoul? She says, shut up, shut up. Yes, Ralph would have been unable to do anything except listen and watch as the old lady sharpened the cleaver and Wilma pleaded with her. So she's begging for his life, basically, saying, you know, I want to marry him. Uh, please don't take this one. She's talking about how she'll bring the cat's meat. Like, don't worry about it, so... It looks like Ralph is the one saying, I think it's the mother. The way this, this panel is drawn, is, is, it's hard to tell. It's gotta be the mother. Ralph is freaking paralyzed. Anyway, so she's like, it's too late, you fool. He knows now. How could you expect him to love you now? So she looks over at Ralph, who's saying, no, no, no. She said, "You know, he'll look, he'll look at you and he won't see your beauty anymore. He'll see you scratching at graves, digging down to the rotting coffins with their moldy, putrescent corpses. I can't believe I got that right on the first try and tearing at their flesh so wilma you know buries her face in her hands and she says she's right ralph she is it's no good anymore i tried to hide it from you i tried so he's still saying no 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 and the last thing ralph would have remembered before he died was the anxious spitting of the hungry cats and the whining of the cleaver as the old lady hacked at him and wilma's voice laughing laughing so the old lady is rearing back getting ready to hack at him and she says, I hope he's as good as the others. And you have him screaming and here come the cats. These cats are terrifying looking too. The end. So now we have the old witch again. Uh, as I said, kitties, I could have told you that story, but actually, you see, that's not what happened. That's what would, ha- would have happened to Ralph if he didn't... Well, let's go back. You remember he was in the office, alone, with Wilma, walking toward the file cabinets and she was stalling and giving him the eye, inviting him to a horrible fate. Well, Ralph was lucky, kiddies, Very lucky. He was so absorbed in Wilma's exciting beauty, he didn't look where he was going. So now he's thinking to himself, I'll offer to drive her home, ask her out for a date, and oops, missed the file cabinets and went out the open window, plunging 20 stories to the street below. We end with Wilma saying, why the stupid blank. So I guess, so I guess just insert whatever curse word. So I'll use why the stupid fuck and that will be mine. You can pick your own. So that's the other end. And uh, do you hear that sound? For, it's something. Okay, for some reason, a garbage truck is just sitting in front of our house. They've already come down our street and taken our garbage. They're just sitting right outside my house. They're not picking up trash. And the truck is making the sound I can only describe as a dying seagull being murdered. With each feather being picked off one by one. That's kind of what it sounds like to me. Maybe it won't show up on the recording and you're just listening to some crazy guy babble about dying seagulls, but Jesus, it's fucking annoying. Okay, so I like this story. Um, I liked that it had this perspective. uh, This is what could have happened, but it didn't. Um, It went like this. So that was really cool, and you still don't get the idea of exactly what Wilma Dune and her mother are. Um, If... I mean, I'm trying to find the panel where, I guess they eat the flesh too. It's not just for the cats. Um, so I, I mean, but then Wilma says, you know, I'll bring the cats' meat. Earlier she says, you know, how many opportunities do we have to get fresh meat? You and my cats. So I don't know. Maybe the mother doesn't eat. I don't. I don't know. That's interesting. But either way. Uh, you don't, it's not clear what they are, which it kind of, to me sometimes can be annoying, but in a lot of, sometimes with a horror, I, I think if it's done right, it just kind of adds a little bit more interesting layer of, well, I don't need to know if they're vampires. I don't need to know like exactly they just call each other ghouls and, uh, that's enough. So I, I liked it a lot. Jack came into the art in this one. Very, very good. Um, as you'd expect, the only thing that kind of threw me off is the one panel where, It it looks like Ralph talking. Uh, He's not in panel, obviously. It's the mother, but she's really close. But I'm telling you, (laughs) I didn't know if it was a mistake, but it fucking looks like Ralph. Uh, So anyway, but yeah, I mean, whatever. It is what it is. Um, I liked it a lot. It was a fun little kind of mystery thing. And I like that sort of, honestly, I didn't really even have to dig into most of the dialogue. There's a few things there where they, you know, reveal it where the narrator doesn't. But I like that perspective the entire time of he would have done this. He would have driven over there. He could have done that. Whatever. Um, so very very cool. I like that one a lot. So um yeah, okay, we we've got I think I think we've got one more yeah, there's one more story and it's actually the Crypt of Terror. And I'm about to go fucking blow up that garbage truck. So I'll be right back. Alright. So that went well. Um the next story is the Crypt of Terror Uh, well, it's not, that's not the name of it. It's, uh, I guess the segment for that. And it's kind of like a, what they do where Crypt Keeper comes, uh, to do this. So, um, he's an advert. So I guess the story is this, the Crypt of Terror, kind of where we're going. The story is the light in his life. Um, and yeah, but it is hosted by the Crypt Keeper. So it's nice to, uh, get a little cameo here, which is normal for these books, but, um, and real quick, too, before I get into it, there's a lot of, um, I guess what people would call now fat shaming uh, in in this book, and I'm just going to read it uh, so it doesn't reflect uh, my attitude on anything like that. I'm just reading an old story that is a product of its time. So, but yeah, to close this out, we've got the Crypt Keeper, and we get his little opening deal. He says, uh, now it's wind-up time, and OW's Morbid Mag And your host in the crypt of the terror. Sorry, what? Uh, This actually, I'll say this. This one, and it might have been the reprint. I don't know if it's the original or what, but like, there's a few word balloons and just captions where like words are just missing, like connective words like the or and or whatever. So um, anyway, so yeah, he says it's wind up time. And OWS Mormon Mag and your host in the crypt of terror, the crypt keeper is ready to put a final feeble f- finesse uh, to the festering festivities with a blood-curdling yarn about the frozen north. This chilling tale is called The Light in His Life. It is also worth noting, oh, well actually never mind, that might give it away. Let's see. The wind howled and blew icily around the lone man on plodding snowshoes, struggling through the wind- wintry wastelands. Snow still lay in a thick white carpet, as far as his aching, tearing eyes could see. Even though the spring thaws had begun back at the river, wheezing, his breath frosting whitely in a cloud and turning to ice on his cheeks, the man stumbled on and at last saw the welcome light gleaming into the gathering darkness ahead, the trapper's cabin, nestled among the towering snow-laden pines. He didn't have to knock with his numbed hands. The door opened before him, and he lurched in in on half-frozen feet, as what I think they mean to have, uh, escorted by a last flurry of snow whipped in by the shrieking cruel wind after a while as the penetrating warmth of the fireplace stole through the stole through the visitor's shivering body and the blueness drained away from his lips he spoke so this is where we meet um ned drake and jake uh jake barrow or Barrow, uh, it's barrow so they greet each other and uh, we learn that jake barrow is ready to get the hell out of there and um uh, Ned is here to kind of make an offer on the place and buy it from him so uh, Jake can leave, which he's ready to go, like, now. So, but he can't leave until tomorrow, I guess, apparently. Anyway, um, the two men settled the matter quickly, and Ned Drake was surprised at the reasonable terms. Somehow, Jake Barrow appeared anxious to go, which seemed odd to Ned. So, Jake tells him that um, it's very lonely up here, um, kind of drives you crazy after a while and he asked me if he's married and so Ned is says yes you know she's waiting back at the settlement uh, until the you know some of the snow goes down and you know we can come and hang out by the fire and, and he thinks it's going to be this romantic thing well Jake says uh, no it, <laughs> let me just warn you uh these winters are long and terrible and you're snowed in for weeks or months at a time um you know if you're stuck here with your wife that whole time you know it ain't going to be cozy. You're going to drive each other insane. Uh, so Ned says, you know, speaking of which, where's your wife? They said you were married back at the settlement. And he says, well, he kind of staggers a little bit, I guess. Um, and he's like, well, it's a long story, but you should hear it though. You know, you might think twice about bringing a woman up here and since I can't leave till morning, you know, I'll tell, might as well tell it to you. The two men settled down, stuffed their pipes and lit up. Damn, they are getting crazy in here. Uh, curiosity consumed Ned Drake as he waited for the story to begin. Jake's eyes narrowed, fixing themselves upon the flickering oil lamp on the table. The trapper stared moodily at the dancing flame with a secret smile tugging at its lips before his voice rose above the wind, wailing outside like a lost soul. They had a blizzard. So, uh, sorry, Jake is talking. Uh, had a blizzard uh, back in the middle of January. Uh, it was a really bad one. So now he's telling the story. He's narrating now. So I'll just, just a heads up. I don't know if that matters, but snow piled up to the roof. Uh, we couldn't even open the door with the snow pressing against it. Miranda and I knew we were snowed in for quite a long time. Day after day, there was nothing to do but eat and sleep and kill time. Miranda played solitaire mostly, that and ate. There you see her chomp, chomp, chomp. Funny how a sound like munching can get on your nerves when it goes on like that all the time. If it weren't for my books, it would have probably driven me nuts after the first week, but I kept reading and ignored Miranda's stuffing herself. You now start to see Miranda is uh, putting on quite a bit of weight here. Um, me, I'm a great reader. Had a good stock of books on hand too. Her eating and my reading, my reading, uh, kept us out of each other's hair, I guess. But the snow kept falling, falling up, and we were kept prisoners longer than we expected. And so, you know, it looks like they're going to be stuck there for about another month. He's predicting. With me, with me not able to get out and get to the settlement for supplies, it didn't take long before I realized they're running out of food. Um, they got to got to cut back to very strict rationing, which Miranda, his wife, um, is stuff I kind of freak out about. She's begging him to not do that, and he says uh, to Miranda, always a hoggish eater, the idea of conserving food was the worst kind of torture. She was miserable from then on, as each meal was reduced to a bit of dried fish washed down with some weak coffee. That sounds terrible, Jake. For God's sakes, I'm hungry, I'm starving. She's starting to go crazy. And he uh, says some horrible things to her. Um, like, but you just, you know, we have to do this, because what are you going to eat when everything's gone? So he says, Miranda uh, pointed to my oil lamp. She says, what about that? The whale oil oil you burn in that lamp? Just read some stupid books. Yeah, that's good, rich food. Whale oil, and you're wasting it. Yeah, good, good rich food there. Uh, Don't you ever touch that oil? Never. That's for me to read by. Understand? Also worth noting, they don't use question marks in this story. It's the lettering. It's like there's just co- tons of exc- exclamation points. Uh, I almost said explanation points, and that wouldn't be a thing. Um, so it's just it's fun, kind of funny because it's like hard to be like, okay, when you're reading this, is it supposed to be in the form of a question until it's over? Um, Miranda didn't understand, of course. She couldn't see that my books, my precious reading was a treasure that kept me from going mad, occupying my mind during those long dragging hours, days, weeks, eternities. So Miranda is, you know, talking about how she's starving and he tells her, I mean, Jesus, he's like, you won't starve, Miranda, not with all the fat you float in. You could probably hibernate for weeks like a bear. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. So stop trying to make me pity you. Jeez, good Lord. Take it easy there. So he goes on. Trouble was, Miranda had nothing to keep her mind occupied. Nothing but the thought of how her gnawing stomach craved food. It was a day or so later when I was refilling the lamp that I noticed. That's funny, the oil's getting low. Lamp isn't burning it up that fast unless... Unless... I fought off sleep that night. Thought to keep awake. And sure enough, when Miranda thought I was asleep, she got out of bed, tiptoed to the whale oil keg, and... Gurgle, gurgle, we see her. Got, she's got the keg, and she is just throwing it back. He says, stop it. He's screaming at her. I sprung at her in her fury, cursed her, pulled the keg from her fat, greasy paws. You ugly tub of lard drinking my, my, it's empty, gone. How will I see now? How will I read my books? You and your stupid books? Well, my stomach is more important to me. I don't know why I made her sound more John Wayne-ish than him, but whatever. Uh, for a moment, I wanted to get, ki- not that that was a good John Wayne, not pat myself on the back here. I told you guys I wouldn't do voices anymore. I'm done. Done. Over. For now. For this episode. Uh, we'll see. Let me know. For a moment, I wanted to kill her. Then I remembered. Even with the whale oil gone, I could still read. Tallow candles. Made from whale blubber. I've never heard of a, of that. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Maybe it's tallow? I don't know. Made from whale blubber. They'll give me the light I need. By burning several candles, candles at once, I obtained enough light to read by. And once more, I settled down to long, quiet, satisfying hours of indulging in my printed treasures. Until one day... And he realizes, uh, you know, there's only a few candles left. And he's like, I didn't burn these, obviously, Miranda. So he goes at her and he's screaming and yelling at her. And he's uh, got her by the shirt. And he's really, uh, uh, really abusive behavior. Uh, He's going nuts. So she blames it on rats. And not very convincingly. She was lying, covering up. I knew it. I tried to force the truth from her, but she kept denying it. I mean, and he's just, Jesus, the names he's calling her, female swine bloated tub of lard like good christ okay i wanted to struggle her uh, i'm sorry i wanted to struggle her Jeez, uh, i wanted to strangle her but my fingers only sank into flabby fat folds of her neck and i didn't have the strength to penetrate that protection that yeah but per- wow penetrate that protection so i mean he's literally just trying to choke her to death and he can't it's, it's, i mean hey blessing in disguise i think i gave up for her i mean i gave up i let her go Put in the middle, but in the middle. Put jeez, but in the middle of the night, as early sleepless and tossing. I heard the gnawing and munching. What's that? Chewing sounds. Is it rats? After all, at my candles? Yeah, it was a rat, all right. A big fat female rat named Miranda. So he comes at her again, and sure enough, she's eating these candles that look more like um, what are those? I think they're churros. I think. They, they, they make them... I don't know if they actually are... They're one of those things that I don't know if they're actually from Mexico or if it's an Americanized thing that... Who knows? That's what it looks like regardless. It's making me kind of hungry. There was only one candle left. I screamed at her. Leave it! You ate all the others, dozens of them. Leave me! The last one, please! Please! So she just tells him she's hungry. She fought fiercely like a wild elephant. She managed to shove me away... God, Jake, we gotta talk about this. Like a wild elephant. She managed to shoved me away and crammed the last candle down her greedy gullet. Dirty, fat, overstuffed slob. Jump, jump. She's still snacking. Then she wiped her blubbery lips deliberately in front of me, grinning. I'll kill you for that, Miranda. I'll... Listen, no, now he's got a gun. And she's just kind of like taunting him. She laughed at me, mocked me, knowing she was safe. So she's like, yeah, well, you know, what are you gonna do when you have my body rotting here and you can't do anything with it? So, you know, he lowers the gun, just tells her to shut up. Even the wood supply for the fireplace was running low. My eyes turned bloodshot and smarted and gave me intolerable headaches as I was forced to read by the dim, wavering firelight. She can't eat wood, thank heavens. But my eyes, Lord, he's really struggling to get these stories in. Suddenly, I thought of one last way to furnish myself with good reading light. These uncured furs. I could scrape off the excess animal fat, boil it down, burn it into the lamp. I spent the whole day carefully scraping off every shred of fatty tissue still, still clinging to the hides, hoarding each, knife, hoarding each knife sliver into the can, as if it were gold. I fell exhausted into bed that night. Every muscle in my body ached. I was tired, but happy. Tomorrow, I'll render the fat, boil it down in the iron pot. Good animal grease to burn, to read by. Hey, off to sleep. But in the morning, when I looked into the can that should have held the scraps of animal fat that I'd painfully collected, bit by bit. Empty! Empty! Miranda! Did you? She sat there, grinning, wiping the last of of the plate, licking her stubby little greasy fingers and mocking me. Did I what, Jake? Did I eat your animal fat shavings? Well, of course, you fool. Kind of rancid, but I didn't mind. I was hungry. I looked at her, and yet I didn't see her. I saw my last chance slipping away. I felt my eyes smart and tear, even in the anticipation of reading by the firelight again. I felt my headache return, throbbing. Throbbing, and Miranda swam before me like a big fat rubber balloon swinging in the wind. Jake, what is it? Jake, Jake! The panel turns all blue and swirly. Jake Barrow paused. He shrugged and sighed. He was still staring fixedly at the hissing, dancing flames of the oil lamp. Then he went on So that's the story, son. That'll give you an idea of what an Alaskan winter can do to a man and his wife snowbound together. But Jake, you didn't tell me what happened to Miranda. Jake looked at his guest and smiled. Send your wife back to Nome, son. Get in a good supply of books. Nothing like curling up with a good book by an oil lamp on a dark wintry snowed-in night. Ned, the oil lamp. It. I, I thought you said Miranda drank up all the whale oil. And, and those tallow candles, where did you get those? Beside Jake on the table, the oil lamp flickered. Jake glanced at its flame and back to Ned, and once more, that secret little smile tugged at his mouth. Ned chokes. So we've got the cryptkeeper. Keeper. Of course, all you fiends have guessed Jake Barrow's charming secret. Yep, he finally got so boiled up over his wife, she was boiled up, period. And a fat chance she had, too. She couldn't run away. The only running she did was from the big iron pot into Jake's whale oil keg. You might say Miranda was finally the light in Jake's life. Well, we'll all see you next in my... We'll all see you next in my mag, Tales from the Crypt. Bye now. And there we have it. That is the end of issue twenty-five, the Haunt of Fear. We made it. We survived every spooky corridor and hallway, uh, but just barely. So overall, this is probably this is one of my favorite, um, just full issues. Um, it with like every story uh, that I've read in a in a while, um, especially of these. And I, you know, I enjoy them all. You know, to one extent or the other. This one, like every story kind of had a point where I, like, and, you know, whatever, maybe I'm not paying attention enough or whatever, but, like, I, I, with, with all of these, I didn't really see where it was gonna go. Like, it wasn't so simple that, like, I'm like, okay, well, obviously, this is gonna be it. Honestly, I thought he was gonna find the candles, like, eaten up or something, and, like, I don't know. I thought we could basically try to make it to where it's like he kills Miranda and then you do see rats gnawing on them back in the background or something. That's kind of the end of the story. Is that she was telling the truth. I don't know. Uh, That's kind of what I thought was going to do and that's what I was thinking as they got closer and then it, you know, that's not. He does kill her but she was actually eating the candles obviously so um, uh, it was a fun twist. Um, It's funny where it leaves off too because it's still like, oh, so I guess, I guess he's still going to buy the house and just kind of Kind of make it work, like where's he gonna go? It seems like they're stuck there, so um, but I, you know, I guess it, I don't get the vibe that Ned would kill Jake. Uh, I think Ned plans on walking out of there, okay? So, uh, anyway, uh, it was this is a fun issue. It was a, all the stories were fun to some capacity to me. I really liked him a lot, and I, I don't, I'm gonna just kind of dig around and see. I, I thought about like maybe just since this is the last uh few issues of this uh, comic book in general, it might be fun to go, you know, ahead and finish it out over the next few uh, over the next few episodes. So I think that was, might be what I'll do. Um, I need to go back and reread them. Um, I read this when I first got it, and it's now it's been a while. So, uh, I yeah, I'll go back and reread those and see if that's what we do. Uh, obviously, my plans have changed, uh, clearly, because I'm, like I said, not doing what I had originally planned, but that's okay. Um, look, if you guys want to get in touch with me, please uh, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm on Twitter at Horror. Let me still make sure it's the same, damn it, because it changed the one time it wasn't what I had set it up to be. I don't know what happened, if I did the wrong thing. But, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's the same. It's right now. It's at horrorcomicspod. And you can email me as well at, um, I've got horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. And I'd love any kind of reading suggestions, uh, any kind of just chat, whatever. Let's talk about who cares what with anything. Um, and I'm happy to read show mail on the show. Um, if you want to, you know, correspond that way, and I can read and respond on the show and, uh, yeah, I'd love to chat. If you guys have any, you know, your favorites, feel free to send them my way because uh, I'm always looking for new stuff to read. And um, also, I know I haven't done it yet, and I know I've said it, but uh, I kind of want to start doing like quote unquote real life, true, uh, you know, horror stories or ghost story- or whatever, you know. So if you've got anything cool like that, uh, send it my way. I'll give you credit. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to act like I made anything up because, well, I'm not doing that. But, um, yeah, feel free to send whatever. And uh, I'd love to read it on the show. I uh, look forward to hearing from you. And I had a blast doing this. I'm glad. It feels good to be back doing this. So uh, it still took me a couple of days to finally finish recording. But it feels feels really good. So, uh, anyway, if there's anything, I don't know, as far as the way the show, my cat's destroying my couch. Hey, stop it. Stop. Cats just don't listen. Anyway, um, actually, she's stuck. She tried to listen. Okay, good on you, Nora. Good for you. Uh, so if there's anything like from past episodes, like that I've done as far as approach to the book, you know, to the stories, uh, the like the radio play thing or whatever, um, that you want to come back, you know, I'm down to do that. Um, I think that people seemed more down with like just kind of going through it like this too and obviously we had the suggestion before about um kind of mixing it up and you know doing one episode or one story like that at the end of the episode or something so that's still a good idea that i'll think about um that would definitely cut down editing time but of course doing it like this cuts down 95 percent of the editing so that's awesome um Either way, I have fun doing it, and I love reading these comics, and I love strolling through these and, and reading new ones um, and learning a lot about these publishers and the artists and whatnot. I know I didn't really go into the artist's or writer's uh, history in this, but I'll, I'll do better next time. Oh, and that new intro music, real quick. Um, that's I'm actually going to let the whole song play as the outro. Um, that is, a, I guess, a band that me and my buddy John... Uh, have for fun. We just record and write together and, you know, we'll throw stuff stuff up on Spotify and iTunes and all that and we uh, just do it for fun. We're not like actively playing or touring or anything. Uh, We just like writing together and we also both like comic books. This one is called Sandman and um, it's just kind of, I guess, inspired by uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, that first sort of uh, volume uh, parts of it. But, uh, we like the way it turned out, and, uh, you know, I figured I'd just throw it on here, but I think that is going to be my new intro just for here on out. Um, so hopefully you dig it, and the band is called House Lalo. We are on all the places, uh, Lalo as in L-A-L-O, all the places you can buy or stream music. We're going to be there, so uh, yeah, check it out, and hopefully you enjoy. But feel free to contact me, like I said, and until next time, please keep reading horror comics and stay spooky, y'all.